in classes I teach at CIAS, we often talk about San Francisco. And the imagery that comes up there through the history and the land and everything else looks like what the Europeans would call Dionysus. The god of drama, the god of altered states, the hippie god in some ways, um, the genderqueer god who's not strictly male or strictly female, but both, neither, what have you, depends, you know. There's an old story that Dionysus got in some trouble with the Titans, who are like giants. I made a prediction some years ago. I said, if, if we're right about this, then I predict that the tech industries will be driven out of the city. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them. So if you've ever looked at gentrification in San Francisco, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. It's out there, you know, it's still going on. Uh, a lot of people who are artists and creative people can't afford to live there anymore. Hello, beautiful culture keepers. Boy, do we need you right now. This is Deborah Ashe with You Are a Culture Keeper podcast. So after listening to that intro, are you curious if we can actually call upon mythology to change the course of things like gentrification? Do you have experiences that you keep repeating in your life, but you feel like you don't have control over them? And do you ever get the feeling that you're not living in the right city? I've definitely had that feeling. So there's a reason for all of that. Our guest today, Craig Chalquist, is a professor of depth psychology at CIIS, California Institute of Integral Studies in San Francisco. He has a PhD and is a leader in personal mythology and eco-psychology, which is actually the psychology of place. Super interesting. He's presented at various Jungian institutes and written and co-authored several books. Some of my favorite books that he's written are listed in the show notes. Craig Chalquist is such a unique thinker that when I was studying at John F. Kennedy University, I took every course he offered because I knew I wasn't going to get these teachings anywhere else. So before you make the mistake of thinking that these ideas are lofty academia, keep in mind that Craig also spent six years leading therapy groups in prisons for men who had committed violent crimes. So his feet are very firmly on the ground. He also tells us how to spot a narcissist from this experience and observing society. His online course on narcissists starts April 13th, so get on it quick info is in the show notes. This is also where we can learn how to protect ourselves from their prevalence in our society and in our lives and even in ourselves. So what do you all think about having a sociopath test for politicians before they run for office? We're going to unpack that too. So before we get into that, I have two pieces of really exciting news. We're looking for a social media and web design guru to join our team. So please reach out on Instagram at u.r.a.culture.keeper. I know it's long, so I put that in the show notes too. 
We would love someone who is multilingual if possible, and we give priority to folks who are in BIPOC and LGBTQ plus community. All are encouraged to apply, and we welcome referrals if you know just the right person, because we really need you. So, second bit of news. I'm really excited about this, too. A lot of you listeners know that I have a private music coaching practice, but in May, I'll be teaching a really special Move Your Voice workshop at Phoenix Rising Festival in the California desert. This is something that I've really been working on a lot over the last couple of years. I'll be integrating the teachings of Carolyn Mace, Joe Dispenza, and my mentor, Isabel Tierney, who you heard last week. And this is to raise awareness about the types of energy that we use when we're speaking or singing. So we'll do this by including emotional regulation techniques and neuroscience in our vocal warm-ups, and these will profoundly change your relationship to stress and well-being. I'm really excited about this because it's much, much more than just singing. It's free with entry to the festival. Um, As you know, in my own special brand, we'll be exploring music and voice from a multicultural perspective using body-based singing methodology that I've developed over the last several decades. Not telling you how old I am, but it's been a while. (laughs) So most vocal teachers use bel canto or European-based training. And what that does is it tames the wildness out of our voice. And it results in a circus dog style that can do tricks, but it doesn't necessarily mean that we can emote in an authentic way. So instead, we'll be honoring my teachers from around the globe with a fusion of singing techniques from Mexico, Spain, India, West and North Africa, Brazil and the Middle East, including my Celtic heritage. So you may DM me on our Instagram and it's the same one. You are a culture keeper with a dot in between each word for more information about this private festival. Here we go with Craig Chalquist. Good morning, Craig. Good morning. Um, so we have a new nickname for you, the Lorax. Yes. Now I have the shirt too. You do? Yeah. (laughs) One of my favorite characters in Dr. Seuss. So you want to tell us a little bit why we're calling you the Lorax? Yeah. Um, it's such a, you know, it didn't even occur to me the connection until you mentioned it. And I went, oh, that kind of makes sense, you know? I mean, for one thing, I'm from San Diego, which that's where Seuss was. Um, and then um, also that word lore, which is pretty much what I focus on professionally in all different varieties. Um, the older I get, the more I realize that so much of importance to us comes down to the stories that we tell, the lore that we have, you know, whether we mean lore like stories handed down through a tradition or through a profession you know, the lore of this, the lore of that, or even science fiction and fantasy. You know, when you when you play games online, sometimes they say, here's the lore of the world you're about to enter, you know, which is pretty neat. I focus on um, what is that lore? How can we get clear on it? And where are we stuck in it when we get stuck? And how can we get unstuck? And I think it's great that I can actually make a living at this. <laughs> yeah, it's so cool. And um, just to give folks a background, um, we met years ago because you were just one of the most interesting professors I've ever had. And I remember at one point I said, 
I feel like you're like the matrix. Can I just put my hand on your shoulder and just download all your information <laughs> with all due respect, you know, and, uh, you know, cause you were teaching us about narcissism in a way that just was very, very helpful information that I've used for the rest of my life as a lens for, you know, looking at politics and things like that. And so all of that was at John F. Kennedy university. And then you taught a terrorist psychology class and I had no idea what that was, but you're such an amazing teacher that I just trusted, you know, and that was the mythology of place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you really opened my perspective around um, the archetypes that repeat themselves around the world. And that work was really allowed to flourish through Joseph Campbell. And then I know you and many other thought leaders have been delving into the work of how mythology can also be identified in different places around the world. And so I was curious if you'd talk a little bit about that, like kind of lay the groundwork for people around that, because it's, sure. it's a new concept for a lot of people. Yeah. And thank you for that, too. I appreciate hearing all that. And um, I'm actually working on, I don't know if you can see it. If I take my magic ring and tap people, then they know Kung Fu, but I haven't got there yet. So <laughs> <laughs> I love that scene. Yeah. When going through the like, ah, this is boring. This ah combat you know <laughs> right so um the matrix yeah which actually brings us right into myth it's full of combat but um myth is something that we tend to think of in old books right and a lot of us including me had really boring courses early in life from uninspiring teachers who went for the greeks zeus was on top and hera was his wife who was jealous and so on and so forth and we're sitting there going why do i care about any of this you know but then when you start dreaming about those two and you get past the usual explanation of, oh, you're dreaming about it because you heard about it in class, you know, but they keep at you, right? And it's like, this stuff has some life in it still. I mean, there's a reason that all over the world, not just the Greeks and Romans, but everybody has mythology. Everybody's telling stories. And even when we think we're being modern, we're still telling mythology. You know, that bronze bull down at Wall Street, looks a lot like Moloch, the, the Assyrian bull god, who used to eat lots of people. <laughs> so not that Wall Street's intrinsically evil, but there is a casualty rate. Everybody knows that, you know. Or, you know, when even when we do things like name a space program Apollo, that's, that's actually the right name, because Apollo always hit what he aimed at, you know. So there's many different ways in which myth comes back to life, either consciously through naming things like the days of the week, or unconsciously, when we find ourselves in an old story, you know, women often read about Persephone and go, I'm her, you know, kidnapped at an early age by an unscrupulous God and, you know, dragged down into the underworld and all that. A lot of a lot of women can relate to that tale and other ones, too. So myth is something that we do collectively all the time. Yeah. And what's so interesting is when you talk about the individual mythology as well. I was curious if you could do that maybe for yourself. Um, Cause I remember you speaking about a certain Arthurian person as someone <laughs> that you identify with. Sure. Um, there's a term that Carl Jung used. Um, Carl Jung, the, the psychiatrist, psychologist, and uh, he used it in a letter and he also used it in a book called Memories, Dreams, Reflections, which is him looking back on his life in old age. And the term was personal myth, and or it, that's a rough translation. In German, it actually means something more like life myth. 
And what he meant by that was we come into a story behind the story that we think of as our biography. So in this letter, he doesn't say much about it in Memories, Dreams, Reflections, but in this letter, he said he talks about Faust the alchemist, Faust the wizard from German folklore. You know, we, I think we've all heard of maybe not the name, but the guy who sells his soul to the devil, right? That's Faust. And Jung was in this letter saying, I'm basically that guy, you know? Um, I've given everything for my knowledge of the psyche, of, of the, the deep layers of personality, and to study how symbols emerge from it and things like that, you know? So he felt that this folkloric story of Faust was his story. And so earlier in my life, and this can change a little bit as we get older, but when I read stories about Merlin, I thought, I really identify with this guy, you know? especially how he was born. Um, I, as you know, I'm adopted, and as a lot of people don't know, the circumstances of my adoption were very strange and complex. And in Merlin's case, he was born, he wasn't adopted, but he was born to um, a mother who was a nun and a father who was basically the devil. And he had to make a choice, you know, who, who am I for? But the interesting twist on this is that he knew all of the past from the devil and all of the future from God, basically through his mother, you know, and he, he refused to relinquish either one of those. So he said, okay, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a devilish person. I'm not going to be unethical. I'm going to stand for real ideals like Camelot, but I want both knowledges. <laughs> so he muddies the water, you know, usually you go, are you going to be evil or you're going to be good? And Merlin comes along and complicates it and says, I'm going to be good, but I want all of it. I want all the knowledge, you know. So I thought that was interesting. <laughs> that is interesting because to me, when I look at things through the lens of colonization. Yeah. And when I look at things like the word, quote unquote, paganism or pagans, a lot of the indigenous European cultures were demonized. And a, oh, yeah. lot of, a lot of those, and I know you know this, a lot of those cultures were very body-based cultures. How I translate that in my mind is, oh, the sacred and the profane or the um, ethereal, spiritual, quote unquote, you know, lofty intellectual ideals versus the body. Yeah. The, the carnal. And all carnal means is it comes from the word carne, which is the body. Yeah. Yeah, you're illustrating one of my favorite things about a myth, which is it's open to multiple interpretations. There's no fixed meaning. You know, when we when we come to one of these old stories and we say it means this and only this, then we turn it into an ideology and it's not a story anymore. You know, then it becomes like a, a zombie and it starts eating people. <laughs> so, but yeah, that's a good way of thinking of it. In fact, the, the character of the devil um, well, a number of people have written about this character and the roots of it and where it comes from. And ultimately, it, it kind of begins as a trickster. It's as though there's something about the universe that has a trickster quality in it, which, when you think about the quantum world, makes a lot of sense. It's like Mercury's in charge of quantum mechanics, you know. It's like, you think you're going to focus on this? Whoop, there it goes. Yeah. <laughs> right, so. because when quantum matter is observed, it disappears or it does something different from what we expect. It, it, yeah, different from what we expect. It's even worse than disappears because that would be predictable. But, you know, when we know where it is, we don't know what speed it is and then vice versa. So it's all, you know, or then there's non-locality where 
things imitate each other across a distance, but they shouldn't be, and all kinds of stuff. Einstein called that spooky action from a distance, which is kind of cool. But um, the, yeah, the devil originally was a trickster, and then through ideology got made into the ultimate bad guy, you know. So there's all kinds of um, meanings around that. And in fact, if you read another one of Young's books, The Red Book, which is uh, an excerpt from his diaries, basically, his self-exploratory diaries, um, the devil's a character in there, and he actually has some of the best lines. He's, he's one of the most energetic characters in there. He's, he's like Milton's devil. He's got a lot to say, you know. So. so why do you feel that mythology is important to the individual? And also the second part is, you know, why is mythology important in society? Mm. But, but yeah. starting with the individual, what can we learn about observing and investigating our own personal mythology? The more stories we know, the more stories we know when we're in them. It works like any unconscious dynamic, like, you know, we go to therapy because we're unconscious, for instance, of our anger or sadness or depression or whatever it is, or we are conscious of them, but we don't know why we have them. And there's some unfinished story there that needs to get brought out into the open and worked on, you know. And likewise, when we're in a mythological story and we don't know it, we're puppets. And then we repeat the story often with really bad effects, you know. So to really understand ourselves, as Jung pointed out, we have to know what myth we're in. We have to know who we are in the story and who we could be and what the possibilities are for expanding it so that it's not a determinism, you know, so it doesn't run our lives. And we go from story to story. Um, there was a period, I guess about 25 years ago, when uh, I was um, in the process of moving and I was putting some books away, and I had wondered why I had been gone from San Diego for 20 years and why all these interesting things had happened. I ran men's groups and um, for guys who had done jail and prison time and, you know, had relationships and all kinds of other stuff. And I didn't really see the pattern. I just knew that I had done a lot of things, you know. And so I was actually asking myself, like, what, what was all that? Now that I'm moving again, it's another time of transition. Why And why do I keep moving? You know, what's that about? And so a book that I was putting away, I misplaced it and it fell on my head. And um, I picked it up off the floor because when you do, when you study things like death psychology, you wonder like why things happen. It's kind of fun. And I picked it up and it was the Odyssey. And I thought I've been on my own Odyssey without even realizing it, you know. And the parallels were just uncanny, you know. Meeting a one-eyed grandfather on my birth mother's side, who everybody said was an ogre, right? That's that's right out of the Odyssey. When I knocked on his door, he said, by what name should I call you? Are you and serious? If I had, yeah. And if I had been thinking about it, I would have said no one or nobody, right? Just to, just to have fun, you know, but it, yeah. it didn't occur to me. It's one of those missed opportunities, you know. But that's how exact the parallels get, right? You know, John Steinbeck was Lancelot, basically. He came in as Lancelot. He, the parallels are just all over the place. He even had a disastrous marriage to a woman named Gwen. Guinevere, right? <laughs> So when we don't when we don't know this, it runs us. And when we do know it, then we can elaborate it and get creative with it and go in other directions. And I think that's true collectively too. Hmm. You know, right now we're seeing Ukraine being attacked by a dictator who is selling the public on the Russian story of Holy Mother Russia. 
So once we've accounted for the politics and the economics and all the rest of the tangible stuff, the reason men are actually out there fighting, the ones who are motivated to go aggress in another country, believe that they are restoring Russia. So what's running all this is an ancient fairy tale, right? So that's a, that's an example of collectively how powerful this stuff can be. Yeah. And what is that ancient fairy tale? Can you unpack that a little more? Yeah, um, I would refer people also to Gary Lockman's work, um, L-A-C-H-M-A-N. He, he, I think he did a YouTube video on this and talked about it at great length. I don't know as much about it as he does because he's actually made a study of this. But there's this ancient idea of, well, the word Russia itself is a feminine word. And so with that comes a personification of the motherland rather than the fatherland. And so a number of czars in the past have tried to build up the motherland. That was their excuse for conquering people, you know. And so by taking over satellite states, former satellites of the Soviet Union, Putin, who himself was a Soviet at one point, says he's restoring the Russian Empire. He's, he's bringing Russian glory back to what it was in the past. You know, he's making Russia great again, right? <laughs> no wonder Trump likes him. So, right. you know, that's a bit about the mythology and nationalisms in general have that kind of mythology. You know, the American greatness, you know, people point back to the 1920s. Oftentimes, um, some commentators like the golden age of America, 1920s, like if you were black, that was not a golden age, you know. <laughs> Precisely. That's such so, a great narrative. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the thing about these big mythic stories when they capture the public. If, if we don't know their myth then we get pulled into them and we don't see that there's always people who the myth don't fit, right? There's always people left to one side, you know, but they work like these little totalitarianisms running all over the world. But on the other hand, if we know what the, if we can deliteralize the story, if we know the story is an operation, then we can actually do good things with it instead of evil ones. So. Yeah. So I'm curious a little, uh, to hear a little bit more about, um, you know, how we can get creative once we identify our myths. So for example, years ago, you know, when I was in your class, you helped me identify my myth, which is the story of Deborah mm. and how Deborah was a prophet. And I also remember identifying at the time with Athena. Mm. Yeah, they're very similar in some ways. Yeah. And what I was really aware of at the time is that I had a lot of warrior energy in my life at that time. And I was really, I still needed that warrior energy. I still needed to be able to draw my spear and my shield like Athena does. But I was also really, really weary of that role. Yeah. And what I really, there's two things. What I really loved is your advice that you gave around looking at how mythology repeats itself in stories around the world. So, you know, you, you've kind of nodded to the idea that there's a trickster God around the world and that we know that there are warrior gods and goddesses around the world. There are thunder and lightning and sun and moon gods and goddesses around the world and love mythology, etc. <clears throat> and so what I did is I looked at this Athena concept of this scholar who, this warrior woman who's also wise and also a scholar. And I looked around the world and I found Saraswati. Yeah. Who is also, yeah. also a, a goddess of 
scholarly pursuits, but she's also um, the, she's a musician. And so she's an editor of music. And, and then I had to look at, oh, do I always want to be, you know, editing my music as I go? No, no, no. Okay, so I'm going to invoke Brahma energy too. And Brahma is the Buddha-like deity in, um, in India who loves all of his creations and he's like overjoyed and exuberant about all of his creations. And then when I need to go into the recording studio, I can edit my work with that Saraswati scholarly approach to music. Yeah. Yeah. And then now because of your, you know, you planting that seed in my, my ear so many years ago in class of Deborah is I'm returning to that mythology now. And just really, I, it's funny because where I chose to live here in San Diego is I'm living on a hill overlooking a canyon. <laughs> and I sit, one of my favorite things to do here is to just sit and meditate and, and, yeah. and get strategic and think about how I want to present myself in the world because that's just the most important way to be right now. That's just the the main message I'm receiving now is that in order to, like I have been cultivating wisdom all these years and now it's time to present it to the world. And then I started a podcast. And so your guidance around mythology has been far more guiding in my life than you would think. You know, it's been a very integral part of my development. And so I just want to thank you for that. And I'm curious if since that time, you know, that I took those courses with you all those years ago, if you have, I'm sure you've been asked this question a lot. Well, if I know my mythology and if I don't like my mythology, how do I get unstuck from it? You know, yeah. so I'm curious if you have some other creative approaches. Yeah. In, in part, you're answering it by talking about the different goddess figures that you've identified with. Mm-hmm. And one of the things I've learned over the years is that, well, a couple of things. One is that the stories become more flexible when we work with them. So I actually relived an experience of being part of an organization that was a kind of um, Camelot figure for me. And we know from the old stories that Camelot falls. So to do that unconsciously is uh, pretty painful. (laughs) I can tell you from experience. But the, the same organization is still around, but I'm working with them in a different capacity. So it does, we don't have to do it the same way if we know what's going on, right? But the other part of it that I think is just as important as what you're speaking to, which is these different mythological figures often have similarities. And so in, in Jung's language, we would say that they belong to the same archetype, you know, the same universal pattern. So... There's a pattern that I've noticed um, over studying myth for a long time, which I think of as the wisdom goddess. And there's different kinds of goddesses. There's love and, and eros and wealth goddesses like Aphrodite. There's nature goddesses like Artemis. There's more maternal goddesses like Isis. You know, death and rebirth gods like Osiris and Tammuz and a bunch of others. And likewise with the wisdom goddess. So the ones you named all fit the archetype of the wisdom goddess. And Knowing that, we can explore even more across cultures. We can look in on Sekhmet in Egypt and also the later Isis. You know, there's a whole Hellenistic tradition of her being a wisdom goddess. Um, We can look in on white buffalo calf woman and others. 
all similar figures, star women for American Indians, some of the tribes. So um, it enriches the possibilities of what we're able to bring into our lives because then we're moving not just in a single mythic pattern, but it's opened out into archetypal possibilities for how we want to show up in the world. So in some ways I have found Merlin to be fairly confining and, and there are certain aspects of him I don't identify with anymore. But there's other figures under that archetype of the mage, if we want to call it that, mage, wizard, alchemist, whatever, who do appeal to me. So in some ways our possibilities for growing are linked to expanding the stories that we're looking at. And you, you just gave a perfect example in terms of your own story. Um, I, when you mentioned San Diego, too, I was thinking, um, you know, as you probably know, in, in the original Deborah story, she sat underneath the date palms. And there's plenty of palm trees in San Diego. And al although they're not indigenous, they still count in terms of the story. So, <laughs> Yeah, there's a palm tree. There's actually, there are three palm trees near me. The one to the left just died due to a beetle that attacks mm -hmm. the palm trees around here, but the other two are pretty healthy looking. Yeah, it's really interesting how history repeats itself, mythology repeats itself. It's very interesting to look at. So the other layer that we touched on is terra psychology. So the mythology of place, and that gets really fascinating. Because what I learned from that, those teachings from you, is that where you live, where you spend your time, is so much more important than we realize. You know, if someone says over and over again that they don't feel right in a certain city that they're in, like really trust that. And I'm, I'm uh, hoping you can unpack that a little bit more and maybe give an, a couple examples of, you know, where you've chosen to live. Yeah, this just... Yesterday, I was uh, teaching a class at CIIS where I'm a professor, and uh, I'm teaching parapsychology there this semester. And so um, when I was talking to the students on Zoom, I said, any examples of places that kind of kicked you out, <laughs> places with it where you just did not align? And it wasn't even a matter of you didn't like the place so much. It's that it, you felt ejected from it, you know. So that was an interesting conversation. I've, I've known a few of those, too. So um, as David Abram and many other people point out, in traditional societies, place, when you're telling stories, is one of the characters. You know, it's not just a backdrop. That's a very recent idea in human history. Yeah. It, that places are ensouled somehow. They have a presence that works on us. You know, and, and that's the main emphasis of terror psychology. What's the presence here? You know, I immediately think of Mexico, because yeah. I, I'm in love with mariachi music. I'm in love with the traditional ballads, the classical songs from Mexico. And like they, so many of the singers sing about Mexico as like a motherland, as a place. Yeah. And it's so beautiful, the love that people have for Mexico. It's a magical, magical place. Yeah. Um, so I, my heart just got so happy when you said that. And I remember at the time when I was taking the psychology class from you that you pointed out that where I was living at the time in Sonoma County, Northern California is the Garden of Eden. <laughs> and I did a whole paper. I don't know if you remember this because it was so yeah. years ago. You remember, I'm, I'm amazed you remember this. So I really went deep with that. And I realized because I was in the middle of moving from Sonoma County to Contra Costa County. 
And the mythology of Sonoma County, you pointed out, is the Garden of Eden. And who was the goddess that you said? Was it Demeter or, or Hesta, the hearth? Yeah, I think there's different ones there, depending on where you are in Sonoma County. So having lived in Sebastopol, that's the heart of the whole Eden complex there, you know. I've even talked to long-term residents and explained some of this to them and they immediately get it. They're like, yeah, that's exactly where we live. Yeah. Yeah. And so it's interesting because for people that don't know Sonoma County, it's, um, it's, and I'm suddenly feeling protective of Sonoma County. I don't want the whole world to go there. <laughs> it's a beautiful place. Don't visit it, but it's nice. Don't, yeah, go visit, <laughs> but don't, don't, li- don't stay there, y'all. <laughs> we got to let the locals stay there. It's hard enough yeah. as it is for them to stay there. Um, so, yeah, it's the goddess of abundance is, mm. is one of the goddesses that rules there. So, yeah. And that would be, there's a lot of names for her. So I was curious if you could list a few. Yeah, so that uh, she's usually called archetypally the Great Mother, and so her names include the earlier version of Isis as she was known to the Egyptians. Mm. Also, um, Demeter and the for the Greeks, uh, different names for the Romans. Um, yeah, she goes under many names. I think she appears in everybody's mythology at some point or another. She's sometimes called the Earth Goddess, mm. which is true to an extent. But keep in mind that the people who originally told these stories, any of them stayed within their own villages, so they didn't have the concept we do of the whole earth, right? So they would have thought of her more as an abundance or nature goddess, I think, Mm -hmm. especially abundance. You know, it's like we've talked about this, where you can walk through Sebastopol in the fall and go from one end of the town to the other and eat blackberries and apples and just eat your way through town, right? It's true. There's so much fruit coming out of every neighborhood and there are apples that grow there. It's an agricultural region, you know. So what's interesting is when we look at place Mm. through the lens of whatever god or goddess is prevalent there. And then when we look at which industries thrive there, and in Sonoma County is the Garden of Eden, it's long been known as an apple growing region, a chicken ranching region, uh, livestock, you know, cows, you know, um, goats, etc. And then there's a lot of farm to table style, very high quality restaurants there. And then you also have the entire wine industry there. And now you have the whole weed industry there. So it's like the land of weed, wine, and women. (laughs) You also have a higher percentage of women there. And, you know, as a woman who is not interested in the weed industry and is, you know, not wanting to become a career chef, um, it just wasn't the right place for me to be. But it was really hard to leave because it's the freaking Garden of Eden. But yeah. it wasn't a match for me. And especially with my mythology being around wisdom, it was hard for me to be in a place where now weed was legalized. And I was seeing a deterioration in the level of conversations that I was having with people. And yeah. it's sad fact, you know, it took me a long time to realize that, but I was like, I'm just not feeling intellectually stimulated here. And people are very bright there and very smart and very open-hearted. But I also 
started to see that, you know, the frequency of weed use in that area was having an effect on the intellectually stimulating conversations that I wanted to have in a sober way. And so I moved to Contra Costa County and I went to college and you told me, Hmm, this is interesting because you've now moved to to Hades. <laughs> That's yeah, at least the other coast. Huh? Or at least the other coast. Yeah. Yeah. Contra so, Costa. Yeah. Yeah, Contra Costa. And I loved living there in, mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. But it was really interesting because when I first lived there when I was in college, I could really feel the mythology of Hades and the underworld there. And I, you know, did my paper for your class on that transition from the Garden of Eden into the underworld. Mm-hmm. And there were so many symbols all around about that. You know, the that's where Chevron has their oil mm-hmm. refinery, which is literally the, the burbling of the earth coming up right there. So... Lots of stuff there. Um, now, when I'm in in that area, I don't feel that level of presence of that underworld energy. It feels very yeah. to me now. Yeah, you've had a chance to adapt to it too mm. from living there, so it's not as intense. Mm. So what's interesting is how place changes for us. Mm. So now. I love visiting Sonoma County, but it just, and it feels, it'll always feel like home to me in my heart, but I know now that it's not my home anymore. Yeah. Yeah. Mine either. Although I miss the place. Mm -hmm. So I'm just curious if you have any thoughts on that in relation to this, you know, concept of terror psychology, like how a place can change so drastically for us in our lifetime. I think it lives out different sides of its story. Hmm. If we think about places animistically, you know, and have just harbor the fantasy that there's some kind of presence there, you know, some kind of reactive field or however we want to conceptualize it. But I think they go through different evolutions of their own story. Mm -hmm. So I actually have an example. So um, in classes I I teach at CIAS, we often talk about San Francisco, which is an estuary. It's the largest estuary on the Pacific coast. And it's where different cultural species, so to speak, mix, you know, And the imagery that comes up there through the history and the land and everything else looks like what the Europeans would call Dionysus. The god of drama, the god of altered states, um, the hippie god in some ways, um, the genderqueer god who's not strictly male or strictly female, but both, neither, what have you, depends, you know. And so when I talk to people who are long-term residents of the city, they're like, yep, (laughs) you know, they just get it, right? So um, there's an old story that Dionysus got in some trouble with the Titans, who are like giants, you know. And there's versions of the giants in different mythologies, the Asuras and the Frost Giants and blah, blah, blah. So um, I made a prediction some years ago. I said, if, if we're right about this, then I predict that the tech industries will be driven out of the city. Maybe not all of them, but a lot of them, you know. So the story is that when Dionysus was an infant, the Titans decided that he would make good food for them. So they went to his cave and they distracted him with gadgetry, you know, with toys. And the Titans put up this big pot and boiled some water in it. And when Dionysus was distracted, they plunged him into it 
and dismembered him and ate him. <clears throat> so if you've ever looked at gentrification in San Francisco, you know exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. It, it's out there, you know, it's still going on. Uh, a lot of people who are artists and creative people can't afford to live there anymore. They, they're having a hard time even living in the East Bay now because the prices are insane, you know. Yeah. So um, dismemberment, right? The city itself is, has undergone that. Um, people trying to get to work and then, you know, a shuttle from a high-tech company hogs the space for its own workers and doesn't leave anything for anybody else. That's one tiny example. Um, but the story continues. And so Dionysus is eaten, but there's a part of him that remains, and that's his heart. I'm, I should say there, that's their heart, you know. So Zeus becomes aware of this because Zeus is the father of Dionysus, and Dionysus is one of Zeus's favorite children. So he throws a thunderbolt and incinerates most of the Titans. He incinerates all the ones that are responsible. And then the stories differ, but there's various versions of how, with help from Athena, the heart of Dionysus is regrown into a god. And so that's why Dionysus is called the second born or the resurrected one. So he fits in that archetypal pattern with Osiris and Jesus and a number of others, right? Yeah, I was curious so, about that. So that's his death and rebirth, or the, we could say the archetype of resurrection, right? He's one of them. So, or they're one of them. So, um, you know, whenever I, I tell my students, whenever I hear that song, I left my heart in San Francisco, I think about Dionysus. Wow. And so what ha I don't know if you're aware of this. What happened uh, about three or four years ago is that there was an unprecedented series of lightning strikes in Northern California. Yes. And they set a lot of trees on fire and the smoke blew month after month into the into the Bay Area. Yeah. I was living there at the time and there were whole weeks when it was unsafe to go outside because of the wildfire smoke. Yeah. So as a result, a number of very large tech companies moved out. Wow. And the ones that are still there, a lot of them are allowing their people to work remotely now because of the pandemic. First, it was the wildfires. Now it's the pandemic. Right. Yeah. So when you look at the parallels between the old story and what happened in the city, they're kind of eerie, you know. Yeah. And then you also think of, you know, the earthquakes being another form of taking down the Titan energy, you know, because <laughs> they tend to take down large skyscrapers that are you know, housing huge companies. Yeah, Robin, Robin Williams had a joke about earthquakes. He, he's from Marin. He's from the Bay Area. And, yep. um, he said earthquakes were God's way of saying, get those condos off my back. <laughs> get those condos off my back. Wow. Yeah. I mean, we don't want to let this drift into a kind of punishing the bad guys scenario. Because right. I don't think the stories are really about that, you know. Mm -hmm. they, they, but they do show us what happens if we go too far down a road that we shouldn't go down. Mm. I think it's so fascinating, too, how you're able to predict the outcome in certain areas and in certain people's lives mm -hmm. and in certain corporations or in certain social settings because of your awareness of mythology. It helps to have a bit of ecology, and that's where the terror psychology piece comes in. Um, I mean, if we had to define parapsychology simply, we could say it's the study of how the things of the world, not just nature and, and skies and hills and things like that, although that's included, but also the, the built world, cars and possessions and trucks and cities and all that, how they live in the psyche, how they live inside of us. And then the reverse move, how sometimes what we think are personal struggles actually reflect accurately what's going on outside. So we study these intimate relationships, most of which are unconscious until we pay attention to them. And then we go, oh, that's how it works, you know. 
So in teaching tarot psychology in San Francisco, I was going around the neighborhood where my school was located, and we kept noticing all these water images. Um, there was a building across the street that its edifice was covered with M's, which is the Phoenician symbol of water. I, I think that was unconscious. It just re reflected the corporate name of the building, you know. And there was a cafe with this wavy pattern in the awning, and the, there was water imagery everywhere. And there were people washing down sidewalks like three times a week and, you know, water names and in the businesses. And so I told the student, what, do you, what would you guess about this place? And they immediately said, there's probably water under the ground here. And so we found out from the city that that was actually true, that whenever they build there, like if they dig down to make a skyscraper, there's flooding all the time. So it gives us some predictive ability, I think. You know, we can, we can then say the fact that this imagery is coming up so much says something about the place itself. And by the way, um, the building that I worked in, I'm now teaching online full time. But uh, when I was on campus, the CIIS building used to be a swimsuit factory. So my students had a lot of fun talking about how Neptunian that was and how we're swimming in the depths. And, you know. <laughs> That's so cool. <laughs> well, I know we have just a few more minutes here. Um, uh, last time we checked in, you know, boredom was one of the things that came up as an issue. We also had Gnostics. I almost feel like we need to do another, you know, check-in at some point to cover some of that material. Um, druids, mushrooms, narcissists, there's so much we could cover. Lions, tigers, and bears, oh my. But um, curious if any of those pique your interest for a quick, you know, outro. Sure. Um, I'm actually going to be teaching a series of classes on managing narcissism at Young Platform, and they start in a couple of weeks. So this is good timing for that. Wonderful. Um, Very excited about those classes. Please, please go on. Yeah. And narcissism isn't just grandiose people. It's something that we suffer from culturally, too. And it's reflected in how we relate to our own planet. You know, the idea that we're masters of nature and that we don't have to care for it is a narcissistic attitude on a collective level, you know. So how do we deal with that? How do we deal with it in ourselves? You know, we're going to talk about that too. So I think everything we're, we're dealing with, the power of story and the presence of place and all of this, in a way, represent limitations of our narcissism. They represent points where we can see that the world is bigger than us and that we can relate to it more meaningfully as humble participants. Yeah, and I remember when you taught us about narcissism in our courses years ago, one of the things that really struck me is you said that you feel that all nations should have a sociopath test for their leaders <laughs> before they are allowed yeah. to run for office. Yeah. And it's a great idea. I still think that. <laughs> I do too. I was listening to Oren Lyons talk about this. He's the, he's, um, the executive of the, the Six Nations. Mm. And he was talking in Santa Barbara years and years ago about a check and balance system that their people have where a, a council of elder women oversee the executive position. Mm. So he told us, you know, if I screw up, if I start doing impulsive, reckless things, the women remove me. Yeah. And from their, from their decision, there is no appeal. Right. Mm -hmm. and I was like, wow, we could learn from this, you know. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah I, I, you know, when people ask what to look for in themselves as well as others, you know, in leadership positions, I say things like, you know, a high degree of charisma coupled with overconfidence, um, you know, vague answers to questions about how things are going to get done and all that, you know, the, 
Americans, I think, are particularly susceptible to this. I've talked to people from other parts of the world who are like, they keep saying, you fall in love with with charismatic people all the time. I mean, someone just has to be charming and you think they're going to make a good leader. Why do you think that, you know? <laughs> mm-hmm. But we can learn from that too, I think. Mm-hmm. Yeah. When does that course begin? I forget the date, but if people go to youngplatform.com and just search it in for narcissism and um, maybe my last name also, Chalkwist, it'll pull it up. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in a couple of weeks, though, so pretty soon. Okay, so I'll put those in the notes and also on social media. Thank you. The course is live, so it'll be several sessions of one hour with me presenting and then doing Q&A, but they're recorded, too, so people who pay for it and can't attend will still get the recordings. For any of you that want to know more about narcissism, I highly, highly, highly recommend that you take this course. You know, Craig, you've worked with um, the prison systems for many years. Would you just mention that briefly before we uh, end today? Yeah, I've um, I spent six years doing therapy with men who had been arrested and jailed for violent crimes. And when you work with that population, you run into a lot of narcissistic wounding. And so it forces you to learn about it. Um, it was never one of those things I wanted to be a specialist in, but, but just seeing that over and over, you know. And then anybody who's at all aware, you see narcissism at work, in your family, in yourself, you know. It's very prevalent, especially in the States. It's what Eric Fromm called a socially patterned defect, which is psychological language for it gets reinforced here. <laughs> so it's, an, it's a huge issue. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. Any... Um ways that you prefer people to stay in touch with you? Sure, through my website, chalkwits.com. That's a good way. You can get in touch with me. You can see some of the things I offer. And if you get on my newsletter, once a month I send out with uh, something on the events and things I'm working on and stuff like that. Yeah. Yeah, you are such an out-of-the-box thinker. I really, really recommend that people get on that newsletter. Uh, your mind is going to be expanded. So, yeah. Thank you won't learn Kung Fu, but you will learn a few other things. So. You might learn crazy. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much, Craig. Always a joy to connect with you. Yeah, me too. Thank you. Uh, thank you. Mm-hmm.